chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. We are glad you're here this morning, and as you know, we have been studying the Word of God as far as the gates in the book of Nehemiah. We know that the book of Nehemiah is a book that really lays out for us how to build a church in an Old Testament format. It shows you the principles involved in the New Testament that really uh, shows you what a church um, should be like. And we're trying to build a church here that's based on the New Testament principles. It's kind of a radical thing today. You're going to find that we probably do some things and believe some things that most churches don't believe today or do today, but we do it because we know they're in the Bible. Our format is the Word of God, simple, plain and simple. We don't have any agenda other than that. And as God brings people in, we'll, we'll develop ministries, and uh, I'm sure down the line someplace, uh, I appreciate my son-in-law Danny uh, leading the singing and all that, and I know down the line God will give us a piano player someday, and then God will give us a piano, and then God will give us this, and God will give us that, and we'll have everything we need. But we're having a great time, because you know what we got? We don't have a piano. We don't have a choir, other than you guys. We don't have any multimedia presentation. We're supposed to be here today, but for some reason the truck didn't show up. We don't have any big flashy things going on. But let me tell you what we do have. We have the Word of God. And that's all we need. And God's given us a great building. Some great people that run this building, they love us, and they just bend over backward. They're glad we're here. God supplied this. But if we didn't have this, we'd meet in my house, we'd meet in the backyard, we'd meet someplace, we'd meet out in the field someplace. The most central thing we have is the book. Because without that, we don't have anything. And with that, you have everything. So that's where we're at today, and that's what we're talking about in the Nehemiah. We're talking about nine gates. And those gates are the openings that go into the city by which the people pass through, and each one of those gates represents something that this church should have. The city of Jerusalem was the plan of God in the Old Testament. It's where the plan of God for the nation of Israel was really fulfilled. It's where the temple was built under Solomon. And it was the, at the apex, the highest point of Israel's time was under David and Solomon when literally the whole world was aware that there was a God in Jerusalem and there was a temple in Jerusalem, and literally the whole world came to Jerusalem to worship God. You don't get that at UMKC. You don't get that at Longview College. You don't get that anywhere. don't even get it in most Bible colleges, but it's true. And there was a time on this earth when God's central plan was Jerusalem to reach this world with the knowledge of God. Well, by the time you get to Nehemiah, that plan is pretty well destroyed. The children of Israel didn't do what was right. God came down as he promised he would if they didn't do what was right, and Jerusalem lays in, in destruction. And now we see in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah where they go back, and Nehemiah begins to rebuild that city. He wants to get it back to where it once was, and he realizes that it has to have the gates and the wall that go into that city. Now in a New Testament scenario, and we've kind of redefined this every week uh, just so you stay fresh with where we're at, the church is God's program. The church not being any building, not being any, any uh, place where you just uh, you go, but the collection of God's people. You are the church. If you're saved this morning, your body is the temple of God. And I've said many, many times, in the Old Testament, there was a temple in Jerusalem that all the world came to. In the New Testament, it isn't that way. God doesn't dwell in buildings made with hands. God dwells in you, and your body is the temple of God. But in the same commission... Where in the Old Testament all the world came to the temple, in the New Testament we're to take our temple to the world. That's what this church is about. That's what we're endeavoring to do. That is the Great Commission. And that is what we will be held accountable for at the judgment seat of Christ, along with a lot of other things, uh, when we stand before God. 
But uh, I want to talk to you today out of the book of Nehemiah. Last week, we got into the water gate. And we really just had an introduction into the water gate. We talked about that the water gate uh, was the preaching ministry of our church. There's more talked about on this gate than all the other gates uh, that we've looked at so far. Not in chapter 3 where we looked at it last week, but we're going to go to chapter 8 here in just a moment. And you're going to see some things about the water gate, which I think are very important. We talked about how that the Word of God was given by inspiration of God and it was profitable. We talked about how it was profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We talked about how that it was doctrine to show you what was right, reproof to show you what was wrong, correction to show you how to fix what's wrong, and instruction in righteousness to show you how to keep it right. The Bible is everything that we need. But today we're going to take a, a closer look at it. And uh, we're going to look at this amazing gate called the water gate. As I said, there's more information on this gate than all the others. And that's because the preaching ministry of any church is the center of all that it's done. This is where Christ gets exalted from. This is where the Word of God is preached. And we know that the job of the church, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, when it's all said and done, the bottom line for our existence, other than giving glory to God, is for the edifying of the body of Christ that you may leave here today a little stronger in the Word, a little closer to God, a little more confident in what you believe, and a little more in tune with what God wants you to do uh, in your life. Now, I re realize today that America has a lot of problems. And just like the uh, time of Nehemiah, where Jerusalem was in disarray, the church is in disarray. And churches today are famous. You can turn to any Christian radio station or you can go to most churches and most preachers probably in the city today at some point, every time something bad happens in America, every time you see some scandal in America, every time something in America that is, uh, you know, is, uh, is really a bad uh, situation and it, it's very sinful and all those things, or, you know, the, you know, the gay movement uh, we've talked about before and the homosexuals and all that or the or all the things that are going on today, you know, in, in, in our society. Preachers like to preach on that. They like to preach on sin. They like to preach on, they like to blame America's problems on the sin in America. They like to blame America's problems on the devil. They especially like to blame it on unsaved people. They look at our government and they don't like Hillary Clinton. Well, I don't like Hillary Clinton. I don't like Bill Clinton. I mean, I don't like anybody that's against the Word of God. I mean, I pray for him. I'd like to see him get saved. But we're not going to be bosom buddies. You're on one side of the aisle and I'm on the other. And I'll tell you what. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. See, I'm smarter than the average person. Well, maybe not smarter than the average person. I'm more informed than the average person. And I know this. I know there isn't much difference between the, between the uh, Republicans and the Democrats. There's crooks on both sides. When you get into politics, there's one thing you have to do to be a politician. That is not stand for anything that's absolute. I can't be part of that. I'll vote for either one that gives me the ability to preach the Word of God. And, you know, when, when Clinton was coming up for re-election and, and, you know, all that, you get all this stuff back and forth about, well, don't vote for Clinton because he'll bring in all the kind of mess and vote for this guy because he stands for what's right and all those things. You know, I don't, I don't know if God looks at it that way. I know where I'm at in history. I know that as the Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. I know that the times I'm living in are wicked times. I'm not sure I want to just go the party line. I want whatever God wants. Let me tell you something. If voting for Bill Clinton or anybody else will get the Lord here quicker, that's who I'm voting for. I don't care. I'm not looking to prolong life on planet Earth any longer than God wants it here. I've got a place that's better than this. But I'm not the kind of guy that goes around blaming all the problems in America on politicians. I don't blame it on the poor homosexuals or the poor lesbians. 
I don't blame it on I don't blame it on sin in general. You know why I believe America's in a mess that it is? I believe it's in a mess that it is today, just like Israel was a mess that it is in the Old Testament because preachers hasn't done what's right with the Word of God. I believe it's preachers' problem. I know what the Word of God is. The Word of God is a preserving salt. And I know that we want to preserve something, you've got to put it in salt. I know the Word of God does something that no other book does on this planet. It holds men accountable. And I know when you don't have the preaching of this book, any society, any country, any nation, any church, any individual is going to go down the tubes. This is a supernatural book. It's different than any other book the world has ever seen. It'll do something that no other book will do. It'll preserve nations. It'll preserve countries. It'll preserve churches. And it'll preserve your family and individuals. I believe that. That's what I preach. So when I look at the mess we're in, I see the problem was caused and started and put in effect by men in the pulpit. I'm not talking about liberals. I'm talking about men who are saved men who claim to love God and love the Word of God, but simply do not preach the Word of God the way it needs to be preached. I promise you, you give me 10,000 men of God that will stand in the pulpit and stay out of politics, stay out of all the other stuff, and just take this book and preach the Word of God, you'll change some things in America. Now, it ain't going to happen. We're past that. Ain't ever going to take place on that scale. But let me tell you something. It'll take place here. I'm not looking to affect the world. I don't have any illusions that someday I'm going to see myself on the 800 Club. I wouldn't go down to 700 Club, but I would get on the 800 Club because that's what I'd start. I'd call the 900 Club. I'd call it the 1611 Club is what I'd call it. I'm not looking to start one of those. I realize that time has passed for that. You're not going to turn this country around to God again. It's too late for that. I know where we're at. I know we're right on the verge of the rapture of the church. God has not called me to do that, nor has he called any pastor to do that at this time. God has called us to preach the truth, to bring in those that are out there that need to hear the truth, for your families to build them in the Word of God in your family and to build them strong with the Word of God and to, and to raise your kids, to love your wife, to love your husband and all the parts of your family to bring them in and ground them in the Word of God. That's what we're back to and that's where we're at and that's I'm telling you that's where that's what needs to be done today and when we come to the book of Nehemiah we see a water gate and that water gate represents what this church needs to be about because I said last week that churches have personalities they do just like people have personalities but churches also have attitude of hearts just like people do and when you come to the book of Nehemiah you not only see the the, uh, the, the personality that a church needs to be, you see the attitude of heart that a church should have. I want to begin reading in chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first a day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street, that was before the water gate, from the morning until midday, before the men and the women and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive under the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. Beside him stood uh, Mathehi and Shema and Aniah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Messiah, uh, Messiah 
and on his right hand, uh, on his right hand, and on his left, Paniah and Mishael and uh, Melshai and Hasman and Hashban, uh, Hashban, whoever that guy was, and uh, Zechariah and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, uh, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua, and Bani, and Sherebiah, and Jamin, and Achab, and Shabbathiah, and Hojiah, and Meshiah, and Kelita. Oh, man. And Azariah, Josabad, and thank God this is going to be over pretty quick. Uh, Hannah and Peniah and the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book and the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. And then Nehemiah, which is the Tishretha, uh, t- uh, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Father, we thank you and praise you today for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for those that are here today. And we ask you, Father, to open up your word and to take the word of God and to give us those things that we need today. We pray for those that are not here today, Father. We pray for those that are ill. We pray for those that are out of town, dropping their kids off at school. Father, you just bless them. Make that time, that transition easy. And pray you'll bring them back safely to us next week. We love them. We love these people. But most of Father, we love you and we love your word. Help us to be a church that stands on the truth, that preaches the truth, doesn't compromise with the truth. We have a, we're, help us to be a church that has nothing to lose and everything to gain by just staying faithful to your word. Taking young men and young ladies, preaching the word of God, taking moms and dads, uh, taking boys and girls, and, and Lord, taking uh, men and women and just training them, grounding them to be better in all that you've called them to do. Help us to do that and be faithful in doing that. And we'll thank you and praise you for all you do for us now in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. Well, in verse 1, I want to draw your attention. First of all, he says this. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. The first thing I want you to see that builds into the uh, attitude of heart of the church is a oneness, a unity, no division. You know, the church at Corinth, without a doubt, was the most carnal church in the New Testament. In fact, uh, uh, when you go through the book of 1 Corinthians, in every case, in every chapter, Paul deals with them on something that they're messed up on. They're arguing about who's baptizing who. They're arguing about uh, who won who to Christ and who's more spiritual because somebody won them of notoriety and somebody else of no notoriety won this person to Christ. They're messed up on spiritual gifts. They're talking in some kind of uh, unknown tongue. It is a mess. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, Paul says to the church at Corinth, he says, I wish there was no division among you, but there is contention among you. The church at Corinth is a church that is a fleshly church. It is a church that's not doing what's right, and it is divided. There is no unity. There, there's division in it. And, of course, the Bible says in the book of Ephesians, that great book that really lays out the mindset and the heartbeat of the church, he says down there in verses 1 through 6 that endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Then he says there's one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And the hallmark word for the body of Christ, for this church, needs to be unity. And if the devil tries to destroy any work, if he ever accomplishes that, I'll tell you where he starts. 
He starts with getting somebody and somebody else to begin a division that begins to separate the body of Christ. I don't care what problem comes into any church. I don't care what you got to deal with. There is a biblical way to deal with it that maintains the unity, that brings no division. And there's a lot of things that can happen in churches. People get mad. People get, something takes place. They don't like the way it was done. People, human beings, are the most fickle people the world has ever seen. And we have an affinity for getting mad about something that is absolutely ridiculous. And what happens, and it's famous in churches, you got people who, who always gossip, people who always are looking for the hot new piece of news, and they begin to divide things with it. You got people who just look for things that they're upset about, and they begin to divide. And the key here in this church, and the first thing he says, that when all the people came together at the water gate to hear the word of God, there was a unity. They came as one man. The one man, understanding that there's one God, there's one book, there's one hope, there's one faith, there's one baptism. And it's a unity and a oneness that makes any church available for God to use to do what He wants to do. Because God is one. God is one. And just as God is the Father, and God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit, and yet these three are one, the Bible says, just as the three are separate, yet there's one, there's different jobs within the body of Christ, yet there's a unity and there's a oneness. And just like there's no division between God and the Trinity, there's no division, or should be no division in any church. But there is. But that's something that the church needs to guard against. And I'll tell you how you guard against it. He goes on and he says down here in verse 4, And Ezra, the scribe, stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose, a pulpit of wood. And he, he takes the Word of God and he, he lays out the Word of God from a pulpit of wood. Now, I don't know what you know about the history of, church, of the church. I don't know what you know about the development of why, how we the way we are today. But if you go back in church history, you're going to find that the Bible-believing crowd really didn't meet in churches. They met in homes. <clears throat> but obviously, as they got bigger and the homes weren't there, they met other places. And it, it worked its way around that, uh, and a lot of times, being a Bible-believing Christian was against the law. It was a capital offense, punishable by death. So they had to hide. <clears throat> they had to meet here. They had to meet in secret. But as after the Reformation, things changed. Now they're allowed to meet. And you find great bodies of believers coming together. And you'll find that out of the Reformation come Methodists and Presbyterians and Anglicans and Lutherans. And if you would go back in any book on church history that has a lot of pictures in it, of that time period, a lot of paintings, you'll find that in the churches. I remember John Knox's defense uh, for his teachings. And a picture is painted during that period. And there's a bunch of people down there and John Knox is up in a, in a little, back then they used to have the, in, the, in those kind of churches, they had the, uh, it was elevated. It was like a little, a little balcony. And the guy stood up there, but it was over on the side. And when the guy preached, he preached from this side or he preached from that side. And the, and the pulpit and the message uh, came from either one side or the other. <clears throat> and uh, you'll see all the paintings and all the things that take place during that period, that uh, the preacher is off to the corner. He may be elevated a little birdcage type thing up there, but he stands up there over the people in the corner of the building and he preaches. Well, that is true, and it's true of the Methodists, it's true of the Presbyterians, the Anglicans, the Lutherans, any of those churches that came out of the Reformation, which we call Protestant churches. But it's not true of the Baptist. I don't know where it started. I don't know who were the first guy to put it together. <clears throat> But someplace when Baptist churches started to meet together in buildings, 
Somebody said, we don't want the pulpit over there. And we don't want it over here. Where are we going to put it? We're going to put it right in the middle. Somebody said, why? Because we want people to know, we want people to understand that the central thing of this church is the preaching of the Word of God. And we want that pulpit right smack dab in the middle because the most important thing that this church is built on needs to be the focal point of everybody sitting there, not off to the left, not off to the right. Right in the middle is where the Word of God needs to be preached. And for time and eternity, Baptist churches have had the pulpit preaching in the middle. Now, that's not in the Bible. That's not a doctrine. That's not something that you, uh, you, know, you lose your salvation on if you put it someplace else. That doesn't mean you even have to have a pulpit. But symbolically, somebody coming up through the church history understood the importance of the Word of God to such a degree that they wanted their people to know by example, not by doctrine, but by example, that the central thing in that church was the preaching of the Word of God, the water gate. So you find it all down through history. All down through history. It's in the middle. That's the first thing you see. When a man gets up to preach, everything is focused on the Word of God. It is the central thing, just like it was back in the book of Nehemiah. Then the next thing he says in verse 3. He says, And he read therein before the street, that was before the water gate, from the morning until midday, before the men and the women, and those that could understand, and all the ears of all the people were attentive under the book of law. There was an attentiveness to the Word of God. I want to ask you a question. I don't want an answer. Answer it inside. I ask this of many, many people. Uh, when I start to deal with people one-on-one in counseling situations, you know, <clears throat> I'll let them tell me their problems and go through everything, and then instinctively I'll ask this question. Uh, I'll ask a form of this question. I'll say, let me ask you a question. Before we go any farther, just so I know where we're at, what is your relationship personally with God and the Word of God? Now, that gets me in the door. See, that gets me after, because I know, let them talk about their problems. Fine, whatever your problem is, I know the book that's going to solve it. We've got to get there. So I always ask them, where are you at with the book and the Lord Jesus Christ? Your own prayer? And then they tell me, and then we work from there. But the question I'm asking is this, right along those lines. Do you really understand what you have in your hands this morning? Do you really comprehend what you've got in your hands this morning in this book? Most God's people do not understand. Most people just don't grasp the reality of what they have in their hands. Somebody asked me a long time ago, if I could name one thing that really changed my attitude toward the Word of God to the place where I believe it the way I believe it now. And I can honestly say there's two places in my life. One of them I got just by reading on my own. The other one I was listening to a a debate between two guys over the issue of the Bible and uh, it, it just like somebody turned the light on. But I was a young man studying the Word of God, and I wanted to learn the Bible. I wanted to know the Bible. And I realized that you had to study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman would, would not uh, be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth and all that, you know. And I was reading through the Bible and coming through the Word of God. And, and, and God gave me a verse. And this, honest to goodness, this verse changed my life. This verse, and I got it one night about 2 o'clock in the morning. And it ruined my sleep the rest of that night. And honest to God, it had ruined my life the rest of my life when it comes to looking anything out of the Word of God because I can't see anything now other than the way God wants me to see it. And it revolutionized my life. It's found in the book of John. One little verse, God just tuck away. And it, it just changed my attitude toward this book totally and completely. Because I was like most people. I wanted to know the Bible. I love God. I love the Bible. 
But that's not enough. Because you have to have an attitude toward the Word of God more than just saying, I love it. More than just talking about it's special. Or more than I've got the right book. And in John chapter, John chapter 21, I was reading down through there, and I was John's always been a favorite book of mine anyhow, and I was coming down through there, and I, got to the, I thought to myself, well, I'm almost to the last chapter. I'm going to finish this chapter, and then I'm going to go to bed. Oh, did God have other plans. And I remember coming down through that thing, and I got to 24. You know how you are when you're tired, and you just want to finish the thing, and you're reading about four verses at a time, you know, and not paying attention to it. And, and boy, I'll tell you what, it's just like God's radar put me on verse 25, and it said that this is how he closed out the book of John. Verse 25 of chapter 21. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, the things that he did, if they should be written, every one of them, <clears throat> I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. When I saw that, I thought to myself, wow. You know what that says? That says that God did other things that's found, than found in his book. There's lots of other things that he did that didn't get recorded. I mean, we read John, you know, the woman at the well. We think that's the only woman at the well he ever met. We see the people healed in the Bible. We think that's all there ever was. That Bible says that many other things that Jesus did, that if they were written down, that the world itself couldn't hold the books. You know what that told me? Boy, that hit me like a ton of brick. That told me that of all those things, God handpicked what he wanted me to have in one book. He handpicked out of everything else and put it in one book. That necessitates that never again can I just read that book like any other book. God Almighty from eternity past to eternity future, who everything he did in the coming of Christ, if everything would have written down, the world couldn't contain it. God handpicked it for me and put it in a book. Now how do you just read that haphazardly anymore in your life? How do you just come to that book and say, oh, that really don't mean anything or this? My friend, it simply said, I've preached this ever since that day. Everything in that Bible has a meaning. Everything is written there. Maybe not to you, but it's written for you. And there's lots written to you. But everything in there, God handpicked that you and I would have exactly what he wanted us to have. I, I changed my life. I've never been the same since. I can't just haphazardly read the Bible anymore. I may not know all the answers. Somebody may say, what does this mean? I may not know the answer. I don't claim to know everything about the Bible. But I know that there is an answer, and it's there for a reason. There's no accidents when it comes to this book. Any other book you buy, there's accidents. Somebody's opinions. Error. Things that may be true, things that may not be true. But in this book, God Almighty... God Almighty reached down and he came down and for three and a half years he said enough and did enough that would fill the world with volumes and God had that pick exactly what he wanted Bob Alexander to have and then gave it to me. I have an attitude about that book. Then I'll tell you the next thing. God always give me... God, I'm, see, I'm slow. And when you, and, but I'm, I have tenacity. And God knows that you can't knock me down with just one punch. i got to get two punches. So God hit me with that one, and it came around and got me with the other one. About a year later, I'm listening to a, a debate with two guys over, over the translations of the Bible. 
And the one guy's taking the position that God gave us a perfect, absolute Bible that anybody in this world can read, and you need no Greek, no Hebrew, that God gave the Bible to every man, and I believe that. The other guy was taking the other position, and his, his, his reasoning was, well, brother, the originals were written in Greek and written in Hebrew, and when you translate from the Greek to the English... You don't get exactly what was said because in every language there is what they call idioms. And in Bible translations there's what they're called idiots. They're close. He says there's idioms. And the idioms mean that you can't translate something exactly here and get an exact translation. So he says that's why no English translation could ever be perfect and be right because you didn't get exactly what God said. Makes sense. But this old boy had been around for a while. And he said, well, let me ask you a question. Back in Exodus, back in Genesis, Moses, he goes in to see Pharaoh. Moses speaks Hebrew. Pharaoh speaks Egyptian. Pharaoh didn't love the, the Hebrew God. He had no respect for the Hebrews. He spoke in, in Egyptian. Moses spoke in Hebrew. That conversation is recorded. Joseph, he's the Pharaoh. His brethren come in. They speak Hebrew. The Bible tells you that Moses conversed to a translator in Egyptian. But it's recorded in Hebrew. You know what you got? You didn't get exactly what Moses and Joseph said. What did I get? I got exactly what God wanted me to have. That changed my life. I can't come to this book anymore and just say, oh, oh, hum, because I'll tell you what they, and I'm not saying the Greek and the Hebrew doesn't have some value, but I'm telling you this, because less than one millionth, I mean, the Greek today, nobody even speaks it. The Bible's written it's a dead language. You don't go to Greek and they speak the same Greek. It's, it's a sham, but let me tell you something. I want you to know that God's people use as an excuse because I know human nature. Say, how do you know it? Because I'm human. Somebody said, well, here's what you're thinking. You've thought this? I know you thought this. And don't look at me like you didn't think it because I know you thought it. Now, you didn't think it, Mindy, because you're sweet. But everybody else thought it. I'll tell you how human nature goes. Well, I need to study my Bible, but you know... I really don't understand all the original languages, so I'm really not going to get that much out of it. So I think I'll watch the ball game. We sell it as a cop-out. We look for, as human beings, we look for any excuse not to delve into that Bible. Well, I'm glad you're here today, but from this point on in your life, you'll never be able to use that excuse again because you were cross-haired and fired on today, my friend, that that book is the absolute standard of the Word of God, and the bottom line is, God gave you in an English form exactly what He wanted you to have. Perfect. And when those people back there in Nehemiah, they saw it, they realized what they have. The question today is, do you realize what you have? And if you don't, that's why you're not attentive. Attentive. Attentive under the book of the law. He said in verse 3 that when he opened that book, the people were attentive. 
They knew they had the word of God and they were not going to miss one word of it. And I'm telling you, I got a lot of problems. And I don't do what I'm supposed to do all the time. And I know I fail in the word of God and even reading it sometimes. But I'm telling you, I know down in my heart that this is exactly the book that God picked. Out of everything else that he said, he handpicked this to me and he gave it to me without any error. And I'm going to be held accountable someday. And that forces me to have an attentiveness to the word of God. And everything I read, I pay attention to. Now, if you didn't like that one, you're not going to like this one. Verse 5. And Ezra opened up the book in sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened the book, all the people stood up. You see, not only was there an attentiveness under the book of the law, But when he opened that book, they stood up. There was a respect for the Word of God. Somebody asked me, and I've been in churches where they they actually read a chapter of the Word of God, and everybody stands up. Somebody said, well, why don't you have your people stand up when you read the Word of God? Well, I'll tell you what. I have a tough time getting some of God's people just to get up to come hear the Word of God. Instead of standing up to hear the Word of God. I ask you a question again. Do you understand what you have? Do you realize what you have today? My Bible says that, that in Philippians chapter 2, that one day that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ, everyone will bow, every tongue will confess. Why, when I come through the New Testament alone, there's over 400 names and titles for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's called the branch. He's called, we could just go on and on and on and on, and that's not even getting into the Old Testament. We sing about that name. We sang the song this morning, Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me that story most precious. Greatest words ever were heard. Oh, we pray in the name of Jesus. We sing in the name of Jesus. We preach in the name of Jesus. And the Bible says that there in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5, he said, Blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. He said, Blessed be thy glorious name, the name of Jesus, which is exalted. Jesus said, If I be lifted up, I'll draw men unto me. He said, that In the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. We pray in the name of Jesus. We sing in the name of Jesus. And on down through our lives, Jesus, Jesus, sweetest name I know. But he says, and he says, blessed be the glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Blessing, praise, and the name of Jesus exalted above that. Go to Psalm 138 verse 2 when he says this. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness, and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. There's no greater name on this planet than the name of Jesus. And yet he tells you that he's magnified the word above all thy name. What are you going to do with that? How does that affect you? in your attitude toward the Word of God? How does that affect you in your attentiveness, in your respect? In Christianity today, we've got a lot of things. We've got big churches. We've got fancy PAs, fancy organs, 
fancy productions, this and that. But I'll tell you what, there's no respect and there's no attendance to the Word of God. People come, and boy, if you ain't done, they start looking at their watch. If you ain't done in 25 minutes. Most pastors and churches, they don't even preach anymore. They get a little stool and sit up here and they talk to you. Or they have a little 25-minute little sermonette. And they're all done, and you put them out there, and you can package them up, you know, and you can buy them. You know, little sermonettes on little cassettes by little preacherettes. Oh, I come down here. Let me tell you something. I'm telling you, man. You do what you want to do with it. I don't care. I know. He says, and Ezra opened the book instead of all the people, for other people. And when you come down through there, I'm going to tell you something. It said they stood up from the morning to noon, 6 to 12, 6 hours, standing while somebody read the Word of God. And nobody left. Nobody complained. Nobody says, this is really stupid. Nobody said, what is he doing? Don't you know it's hot? Don't you know my legs are tired? Why didn't, why didn't somebody tell me to bring a lawn chair? I mean, when are we going to eat? My roast is in the oven. Why didn't you, you told me to come to hear this. Why didn't you tell me we are going to be here for six hours? No. There's a oneness. You know why? There's an attendance under the word of God. There's a respect for the Word of God. And they love the Word of God. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I'm not mad at you today. I love you. You people, as I look at you, are the basic foundation of building a New Testament church. Every one, even if you're here for the first time. I look within you, you have everything. Don't be mad at me today. I love you. I'm not picking anybody out of here. I didn't, I didn't call up last night and find out who was coming to church and preach this message. This is just in the stride of where I'm going. And I believe everybody in honest to goodness. I, uh, God is my witness. On my King James Bible, I believe that everybody in here has the ability to be everything that God wants you to be. And I'm just telling I'm preaching to me as much as I'm preaching to you. I'm telling you. This is a reality check for me. Because I'm going to tell you something. When you get to the judgment seat of Christ, God's not going to ask you what you did here, what you did there, how many this, how many that. He's going to want to know what, what you did with that book. I'm going to give you two scenarios. God is right and holy and just. Amen? Amen. Everybody believe that? Is God unfair? No. God's fair. Well, if, and, and is anybody here don't, un, don't believe that God someday is going to judge you by what's in this book? This book's the mind of Christ. Sure he is. Well, how does God judge you at the judgment seat of Christ for what you did or what you didn't do for him if he didn't give you an absolute standard that you yourself could get to find out what he wanted you to do and then do it? He couldn't. It'd be ludicrous. It'd be like me going to high school and the teacher not giving me a history book and then flunking me for the history test and then and putting me back another year because, well, you didn't pass the test. You didn't give me the book. What's that got to do with it? What's it got to do with it? I didn't even know what to study for. The judgment seat of Christ would be a fiasco. What? You wanted me to go to the mission field? How was I supposed to know that? You wanted me to preach? and How was I supposed to know that? God's going to say, I gave you a book that told you everything from me that I handpicked for you. Not for the church. For you, for you, for you, for you, for you, for you, and for me. No excuse. And the bottom line is this. Here's the other side. If that book isn't what God, I said it is and what God said it is, don't worry about it. What's God going to do? He's going to beat you up, kick you around because you didn't do what he told you to do and he never told you what to do? If that book is the book that God says it is, 
we're in trouble as the body of Christ in 19, or 2003. If it isn't, we'll slide right through. Don't count on it. Don't count on it. The book is the book is the book. And God gave me and you a book handpicked by God that out of everything that he did, he handpicked what he wanted me to have and put it in 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,175 verses, and says, this is my mind. I'm going to hold you accountable for what you do with it. My job is to be attentive to it, respect it, and then verse 8, to love it. So they read the book. They read the book. Well, everybody reads the book. Show me a false cult doesn't read the book. And you got all kinds of people out there believe all kinds of stuff. So they read the book. Big deal. Wait a minute. So they read the book. Distinctly. And gave the sense. And caused them to understand the reading. First of all, it says they read the book distinctly. That means they kept it within context. Your Bible has a context. Every chapter has a context. A verse without a context is a pretext. Your Bible has a context. It's written to one or through groups of people, either the Jew, the Gentile, or the church. Every screwed up church in the world, every screwed up doctor in the world that somebody's out of line with the Bible comes into play because somebody gets a verse out of context and applies something to the Jew to the church or vice versa. They read it distinctly. That means they were accurate in what they read. Distinctly. It had a context. It had a context. Then it says they gave the sense. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15, to study to show thyself the proven to God, not your preacher, not your wife, not your husband. Not your kids. They're all important. But not the first important. The first important thing is study to show this to approve unto God. It's his book, not mine. A workman. going to take some time. What need is not to be ashamed. Judgment seat of Christ. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Your Bible has divisions in it. Your Bible has a doctrinal meaning, historical meaning, an inspirational meaning. I'm not giving you a course on a Bible study course today. I'm just saying there's a, it, they read it distinctly. They had a context. They gave the sense. They knew what it was talking about. And then other people. Look down at verse 7. Oh, here come these names again. These guys. Let's just do it that way. These guys. Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamim. He was a rapper. <laughs> All these. Look at it. Look at down the end of that thing. Just get down in soft ground here. These guys... These guys, and you find these guys all throughout here. These guys caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. You know what those guys did? They helped the younger Christians, or the younger people, understand what was being said. Because you know what? It's like, Monday, it's like Thursday night Bible study. It's like this morning. There's things here that maybe I've said that you don't understand. And there's people here, older guys, older gals, that will take you aside. It happens every Sunday. It happens every Thursday night. I watch it after Bible study. Somebody's over in the corner explaining something to somebody. Or they'll come to me and I'll explain it. I try to explain it as best I can. It's tough on, on Sunday morning because you've got to preach. You don't have time to take questions. But I'll talk to you afterwards. I'll tell you the greatest thing we have to offer. And I say this every week. I know you get tired of hearing it, but the visitor's never heard it before. We don't give away pens. I don't have a card that says we're glad you're here. I don't get a little name thing so we can come track you down this weekend. 
We love you. We're glad you're here. But you know what? I understand this church isn't for everybody. I don't have a lot of things to give you other than this book. Here's the only deal I can give you. I don't care who you are. If you want to learn the Bible, want to study the Bible, I will meet with you an hour a week and help you understand the Bible at your own pace, at your own speed. I'll work with you however you want to. That's my goal because that's what the job of the church is. So they read the book. They read it distinctly. They gave the sense. And some of these guys caused them to understand the reading. Somebody help somebody else understand the Word of God. You don't all pick it up the first time. You don't all pick it up the first time. Mindy, has she helped you understand the Bible? Hasn't she, huh? She didn't just bring you to church and you get saved and then just leave you, did she, sweetheart? She, she sits down with you and she teaches you. You ask her questions, don't you? Huh? That's the way it's all about. Jan, you've done the same thing. Nancy, you've done it. All of you have done it. You've all done it. Pam, John, everybody. Everybody's done it. Everybody's done it. Somebody's got, you got people at work. And, and that's what it's about. You understand it. Some of you have been with me for 20, 30 years. J- John and Jan, I remember them when they were just that high. We've been together 30 years, some of us. You know the Bible. Next week, when we have our baptism, John's preaching. Week after that, the next time we do it, somebody else will preach. <clears throat> we do our communion. Jimmy did it last time, didn't you, Jimmy? John did it. Well, next time, somebody, we got a list. Somebody else will do it. You know what? There's men and women here who know the Bible, and they, in their lives, they meet people, they bring people, and we just don't leave you hanging. Somebody says, I don't understand. What you do is you take the Word of God, and you help them and cause them to understand the reading. It's what I do. It's what you do. It's what we're supposed to do. Then the last thing, and I'm finished, was their attitude. Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, what a great leader he is. And Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. Look at this. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Hey, I don't want to be melodramatic. Have you ever wept over the word of God? Have you really? It never ceases to amaze me. It just blows my mind how people become so callous to the greatest book the world has ever seen. I've spent my whole life training young men and young ladies to love the Word of God. I'll spend the rest of my life. I, I, God, I believe God give me, if He doesn't come, I believe i got 20, 30, 40 years left. I'm only 28. I believe I can go on for a long time. <laughs> hey, let me tell you something. If God gives me that time, I know what I'll be doing when He comes. About taking young men and young ladies and helping them understand the greatest book the world has ever seen. Taking men and women and teaching them how to preach. I'll tell you what, my greatest joy, <clears throat> and I, I, my greatest joy, and I just say that, I say it all the time. If you get tired of hearing, I'm sorry. But my greatest joy is my family. I have my boy right there leading singing, my other boy back here doing the tapes. I have my wife down here that just uh, is the greatest wife in all the world. My two daughters in there with the kids right now, always everybody's together. Everybody just doing for God. I mean, it, it, the ministry, it's, 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 that's the way it is. And boy, I'll tell you what, I thank God for that every day. I, I, I have not always done what's right in my life. And I, and I don't take any credit for it. My wife's the one who takes credit for it. I'm an idiot. She's a stable force in our factory. In fact, I'll sit down and let her preach. But I'm telling you this. You say, how did you get that way? I'll tell you why. Because God honors and blesses the book. He does. He does. And I'm just trying to tell you that. I'm trying to tell you that. And I'm telling you. I appreciate the families that are in here. And I know we go through tough times with our kids. I don't, I, I, that's just the way it is. 
That's just the way it is. But you know what? You're here today. Your kids are saved. God bless you. God bless you. Do you love the book? I, I tell you. What's missing in God's people's lives today is just not a love for the book. It's a passion for the book. A passion for it. The Bible says in verse 9 that all people wept when they heard the words of the law. We take it for so much granted. And, I, you know, please, you younger Christians, I mean, I, I, maybe you're not even there yet where you can identify. And I understand that. It comes in a process. But I'm telling you, man, I'm telling you. I mean, these people sat down there from morning to noon, six hours, versus 25, 35 minutes in most services today. You know, and I said, somebody said, well, why don't you have them stand up? Because I just want to get them to get up. And be here. Loving it. Loving it. You know, I heard a story years ago, and most of you heard this, but I need to hear it again, and there's visitors here. I, I, heard, a, I heard a guy one time tell a story, and it, it's, he, he said that, <clears throat> and he was pre, he's a great preacher, and he was talking about <clears throat> learning the Bible. And he said, and I've stolen it and used it and rehashed it and cut it. It's great. He says the key to learning the Bible is not studying it, though you have to study it. The key to learning the Bible is not reading it, though you have to read it. The key to learning the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, is loving it. If you love it, you'll learn it. There was a kid one day, lived over in a foreign land, and in his village was a great wise man, one of the wisest men in all the country. And this kid dreamed as a young boy about becoming a wise man like this man. And he knew that he had taught other young men that, his wisdom. So he went, to the young man, he went to the old man one day and he says, I want to learn all that you know. I'll, I'll come into your house. I'll be your servant. I'll do whatever you want me to do. The only thing that I ask is teach me your wisdom. And the old man says, come into my house. About a week went by. <clears throat> Nothing really significant happened. The young boy got impatient like we all do, and he went to the old man. He says, when, well, I don't, when are you going to start to teach me all this wisdom? I've been here a week. Come on. I want to get going here. Okay. The old man says, let's go. Went down through town, down to the river. <coughs> Kids thinking, wow, going to have some special anointing ceremony of wisdom here. Going to have a big ceremony. I'm going to get a little badge that says wisdom in training, you know. Old man went down there and took him down in the water. <coughs> Got about it to hear. Kids looking around about that time before he could do anything. The old man grabbed him and pulled him under the water. He didn't even get a good breath of air. That kid down there choking and just about drowning. The old man just standing there holding him under the water. Just holding him under the water. After about, <coughs> you know, a few minutes, you know, he pulled that kid out. That kid just about dead. He brings that kid out, lives that kid on the bank, just stands there like that. And the kid's just coughing, spitting up, you know, doing self-CPR and a whole nine yards, you know, trying to get himself all the water out of his lungs. <laughs> you like this story, don't you? It's really good. It's going to get better here in the end here. I like you. You're my good champion. You just sit there and keep trailing me on. Anyway, he went down there. <clears throat> that kid got up and he says, what is, what is wrong with you? I came to you for wisdom. <clears throat> I came to you because everybody said you're the wisest man in the world. I wanted to learn. You about drowned in me. How in the world can I learn wisdom like this? The old man looked at him and said, you know what, kid? When you want wisdom, 
just like you wanted air, then you'll get it. And I'm going to tell you, when you want that book, like a dying man wants air, you'll get it. It's a passion. It's a passion. What does it take to mess your day up? You go to work. That night you're planning on stopping by the gym for your aerobic workout or whatever you do. You get to work and you forgot your gym bag. Believe it or not, it'll mess up your whole day because you really want to go do that and you forgot it and now you've got to alter your whole plans. And I don't care how insignificant that is, you know what? Your whole day is going to be messed up now because you are out of sync. You go to the office, get there, ready to go to work. Ah, I left my laptop at home. You ever try to have something like a laptop that you have all your work on and not have it and then try to work the day? Can't. So what do you do? You have to go back home and get it and come back. Go to work. Got a lot to do today. <clears throat> ah, forgot my glasses. I can't see anything. I got all these reports I got to fill out. It, it, something so insignificant, throw your whole day off. You're a carpenter plumber, electrician, you go to work, you took that tool out of your truck to do something for somebody else and you left it in the garage and now you're on the job and you're 40 miles from home. Ever been there, Paul, and you left your <laughs> drill someplace or your saw someplace and the boss says, cut me all this, and you're saying, I left my saw at home. I know for me, when I was marking lines in the ground, one day I left my RD, which is the thing you find of telephone lines in the ground. <clears throat> I was down Paola, Kansas, and I was really busy, and I had to go all the way down to almost to Fort Scott, which is like 70 miles. Had an emergency, water main break. People are down there waiting. They page me on the line, you know, hurry up, crew on site, you know, people drowning, hurry up, you know, get down there. We can't dig till you mark the lines, you know. So I finished up, threw my stuff in the truck, and I'm down there, and I'm five minutes away. I just remembered I left my transmitter to the transformer in the yard back there. Ruined my day. We've all had days like that. Upset your whole schedule. Doesn't take much to mess our days up. Just something little that we really need. I mean, throw your whole routine off. Throw your whole day off. And yet, you know what? Me and you, tomorrow, last week, we can go to work and never miss not being in a book a day in our lives. I, I, I don't know if you, about you. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not speaking for you. I'm, I'm preaching to myself today. If it gets on you, I'm glad. Come back. Get some more next week. It's free. But I, I can't, I don't get in the book in the morning. I, I, my whole day screwed up. I, I'm just, I just can't get anything done right. I, I, and I know that there's no ritual to it. I know that. <clears throat> I'm just saying a passion for the Word of God. A passion for the Word of God. I want to tell you what. Loving that book. These people, when they built this, built this, started to build Jerusalem, he caught some people together, and they were together. They were one. And they had an attendant to the Word of God. And that pulpit was right there, and they opened up at that water gate, and he opened up the Word of God, and all the people stood up. 
He began to read, boy, and there's people down there that some of them didn't understand what was being said. Maybe they hadn't been around and knew what went on back in Abraham's time or Solomon's time or David's time, all that time back there, and somebody began to explain it to them. And the people wept. They, unlike us, they knew what they had. We live in a world today called Christianity that has lost sight of the greatest book the world has ever seen. And we do not understand what we have today. We take it for granted. Last week I told you a surefire test for spiritual growth. And that is, can you take hard preaching and go out of there saying, boy, that was sweet. I like it. Now I'll give you one on how do you know if you love the book or not. If you miss it a day, how do you feel? Paderinsky was a great piano player. Still is. I've got some of his tape. Believe it or not, I like classical music. I'm, I'm quite the cultured person. He could play that keyboard up one side and down the other. You know what he said one time in an interview? He said he practices 10 hours a day. He says, if I miss practice one day, I can tell it. If I miss practice two days, music critics can tell it. And if I don't practice for three days, everybody can tell it. It's the same way with a book. If I miss it a day, I can tell it. If I miss it two days, my wife can tell it. If I'm out of it for a week, everybody can tell it. Passion. And that's what this church has to be about. The central ministry of this church has to be preaching the Word of God. Taking men Maybe their lives, they've had some problems. Women, divorces, alcohol, drugs. I don't care. Whatever. I've said it before. I don't care where you've been. God didn't care where you've been. He just cares where you're at right now. And build them from there. Just like that little guy Thursday night. I'm not a Christian, but I like good preaching. You know what he had there? He had the right attitude about a book. And God used it to save him. This church here, we have to build on those things. It has to be a unity. Everybody has to be one. It doesn't mean we don't always agree. We always agree. It doesn't mean you have to look at the Bible everywhere I look at it. There's latitude for that. We know what we've got to agree on. There's room for that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a oneness of spirit and purpose of what God has called us to do. Understanding that the preaching ministry of this church is the number one thing. And that we love it. We respect it. We have an attitude of heart toward it. Because that will make you or break you when it comes to your own personal life and to building the church. Every head bowed and every eye closed.